Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. This is your host, Joshua Summer. Thank you for tuning in. Anchor.fm, Spotify, iTunes. You can find the podcast on all three of those platforms. And if you're looking at this YouTube video, don't forget to smash that subscribe button if you haven't done so already and click the bell for continued notifications. Give me a thumbs up if you like the episode and give me a thumbs down if you don't like the episode and interact through the comments section. I welcome your comments, good or bad. We're all about free discourse here in as much as YouTube allows, of course. And on that note, don't forget about joshsummer.substack.com, which is my new subscription-driven newsletter. It's There's a free option. There's also a paid option. And that paid option helps to support free video content like this. It's inexpensive. It's less than $5 a month, $45 annual subscription, and you'll get all sorts of cool perks like extra videos that I don't publish for anybody else, discussion board questions, and special newsletters that, again, no one else will receive. Dr. James White addressed me this evening on Dividing Line episode. I was very grateful and humbled that he did. I think the way that he approached the content was inquisitive enough to actually provide an opportunity to clarify, so that's what I want to do here. There was, you know, Dr. James White, usual snark, I'm not going to address any of that. I don't want to get into any of that and any of the personal stuff that was that was thrown around. That's fine. Uh, I, I threw a cannonball over the bow uh, in my Facebook post that he's addressing, and and I suppose he's throwing cannonballs over the bow, and and that's that's fine. He's he's entitled to 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 do that. So, um, what I want to do here is interact with the actual content and try to clarify. I think there's great need for clarification on some of the points that he bring that he brings up and um and uh and I think I thank him for for providing that kind of an opportunity here. Let me go ahead and bring this up here and um I'm just going to go through it. I'm going to start. It's about a 10 minute section. He's already brought my name up. Uh he's already told everybody that he's interacting with my Facebook post. He's read the quote that I regurgitated on that Facebook post from him that talks about uh, the zeal of Reformed guys for Thomism or Thomas Aquinas. They have an odd interest in Thomas Aquinas. And that's what I, you know, that's what I, I quoted. And then I responded in part to that. Obviously, it's a Facebook post, so not everything is in there. And Dr. James White is a busy man. He's not aware of everything else I've written. His job is not to read Josh Summer on the internet. So, I don't blame him for uh, not seeing some of the other context for that 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 post, and, um, and and that's fine. So this this will be an opportunity to to provide that context. Um, I will just preface before I jump into the video here. When we use words, we have to understand how we use words for certain concepts and ideas and all of that. Because if we don't understand how we're using words, we're going to talk past each other, we're going to misunderstand each other, and then the waters are going to get muddied very, very quickly. So it's important we understand words. When Calvinists use the word Calvinism, they are not describing a doctrine that originated with Calvin, right? They're using, they're invoking Calvin's name uh, in the moniker to denote their position, and they're doing that so that they can distinguish it from other competing ideas or doctrines out there, so that they are distinguished from other uh, other ideas like Arminianism, for example. Um, and 
and and they're not they're not idolizing Calvin. They're not obsessed per se with Calvin. I've known a lot of Calvinists who are not personally obsessed with Calvin, um, and they don't, but they still use the term Calvinist to describe their position. The term Thomism in this recent discussion is being used in the same manner. It's being used to describe a uh, a concept that does not originate with Thomas. I would argue that it's an assumption through uh, throughout apostolic Christianity, the patristics, uh, the the Nicene and the post-Nicene church fathers, uh, obviously throughout the Middle Ages, although there was some controversy there, um, and then into the Reformed and the post-Reformed, less so in the Reformed, more so in the post-Reformed, surprisingly. There's reason for that, and Dr. Muller does a great job of, of pointing some of that out, in the first, especially in the first volume of his post-Reformed, Reformed Dogmatics. So, keep that in mind as I go through this video. Um, Dr. James White's concern is that people are falling in love with Thomas as a personality, that it's sowing the seeds for a uh, transition into Roman Catholicism, uh, I want to to say here right up front that talking about Thomism and supporting aspects of Thomas's understanding of things like metaphysics and especially the doctrine of God does nothing to push someone toward Rome any more than studying Calvin does anything to push someone into pedo-baptism, okay? And uh, what I find interesting about these uh, about these kinds of genetic fallacies, these these attacks, on ideas based on the persons they're being set forth by is extremely troubling in my estimation, and I don't think it's a valid way of reasoning about the facts at hand. So um, we need to remember that this isn't personality worship. It may be for some people. I mean, I mean, but we all agree here that that's not right, that that would be idolatry. White makes reference to uh, the idolatry of persons, uh, human persons, theologians, etc., uh, and, and he's exactly right in making that observation. If somebody idolized Thomas and was obsessed with Thomas, we'd be having counseling at my church, right? We'd be having discussions about that. And, and that person would be admonished not to, uh, not to pursue that course, not to pursue a study of Thomas, uh, in, in that fashion. And, um, and so anyway, so let's just go through this video because, you know, 12 minutes of content when you're responding to it can easily turn into like an hour. And I don't exactly want to be here for an hour. It is evening time and I just put my kids to bed, spent time with them. And um, I don't want to be doing this for the next hour or so. So excuse my brevity. Here we go. And, and that's, that's what all of a sudden I was like, what all of a sudden I was like, had to start thinking this through. Had to start. So this is nothing new. So that was eighty six. So this is not. Um, Doctor White is is talking about an experience he had in seminary when a professor said that Thomas proved the wrong God. Um, according to a technical definition of what proof means, if you prove the wrong God, we're in trouble because that means the wrong God is. Proved. That means he's true, right? You can't prove something that's false. The nature of proof is is like demonstration from a set of premises that ends at a necessary conclusion given the truth of the premises. So if you prove something, you successfully proven it, then it's true. I mean, uh, and, um, you know, especially when you're talking about uh, the modus ponens, modus tollens that you find in, in Thomas, 
and the kind of admixture of both inductive and deductive reasoning that you find in him, his conclusions lead to a, to, to a necessary conclusion. His premises lead to necessary conclusions. So you have to take apart the premises if you're going to take apart his argument, um, and you have to say, Thomas didn't prove anything, right? So that's just kind of a, a, a qualifier there on, on Dr. White's earlier language. So not something that's new. I mean, what, 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 35 years? It's not something new, new for me at all. I have, I have, I can't remember a situation where I have seen a reformed person's fascination with Aquinas lead to anything but fundamental disaster. Okay, again, he's he's talking about reformed people being fascinated with Aquinas, as in the individual Aquinas. I, I would I would want to, you know, figure out. I would want to ask Dr. White who these individuals are that he thinks are fascinated with with the man Thomas Aquinas, because a lot of this has to do with resourcement, historical theology, creedal orthodoxy, confessional theology. Um, and re recovering the uh, the authors, the authorial intent behind those 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 documents, and it, it's not so much to do with what Thomas even said. If anything, Thomas is a supporting line of evidence for the position of classical theism, and he is so because of his clarity on the issues at hand. But we don't need Thomas per se to go back to Nicaea or to go back to uh, the Apostles' Creed or Athanasius. We don't need Thomas Aquinas to go to the post-reformed like Francis Turretin, Francis Chinel, Stephen Charnock, uh, Franciscus Junius, you name the, the, the Puritan. Um, uh, uh, William Perkins behind me. A lot of these men are just stacked up on my bookshelves behind me. Bavink, in some measure, even even though he's a 20th century, uh, 19th and 19th century uh, theologian, kind of after the peak of Reformed Orthodoxy, uh, historically speaking. So we, we need again. We need to be very careful about how we're about how we're using terms. Nobody's saying Thomas is the guy. Therefore, follow Thomas and everything that he says. A lot of this has to do with the resourcement of historical theology from Augustine. You know, going back to the apostolic Christianity, I think there's some great exegesis out there that supports classical Christian theism. Uh, but then you have then you have the Antonicene fathers, the Nicene fathers, the post-Nicene fathers, and you can resource classical theism out of all of those eras in church history, and I think the argument could be easily, easily, easily made that the classical theism articulated by Thomas was what was being assumed and articulated by earlier theologians in the church. Okay, so um, this is not, again, nobody understands this to be novel to Thomas Aquinas, and if you, if you think that this classical theism is original to Thomas Aquinas, or if you think that this development of doctrine is 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 found 
in none other than Thomas Aquinas, well, then you're on the wrong footing. But see, I don't know anybody who thinks that, especially when you get to, uh, you know, the guys who are who are doing real work on this point. Um, you know, James Dalzell is not holding up Thomas Aquinas as if he's the savior of doctrine. Richard Muller is certainly not. Richard Muller is making some very careful distinctions uh, in terms of where the Reformed and the post-Reformed actually departed from Thomas and uh, and medieval scholasticism. Uh, and, and so, you know, all of that work is being done, and all of that work serves as a backdrop for much of the discussion, at least a side of the discussion, that's going on right now. A lot of the stuff that Davenant is doing is 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 resourcing theologians and their and their bodies of work on this very point, and it stands to reason that much of what they're, re- they're what they're resourcing is not Thomas Aquinas. What they're resourcing is post-reformed Orthodox Christians. Um, they're they're not resourcing someone whom Doctor White would 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 call a Roman Catholic, right? And I would call him a Roman Catholic too. They're not resourcing someone who has a questionable doctrine of the gospel, a la Thomas Aquinas. They're resourcing reformed guys. Like, and I'm not talking about just reformed guys. I'm talking about guys that set on Westminster and contributed to the framing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm talking about guys who who helped with the framing uh, and provided the doctrinal context for documents like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith and the authorial intent between behind Chapter 2, uh, Article 1 of that confession. The same is true with Westminster. The Belgic Confession, Three Forms of Unity, Savoy Declaration. Um, um, the guys that surround all of that in terms of the historical context are the guys being resourced and the theology that they're articulating, Junius would be on the forefront here. Peter Martyr Vermigli would be another one. Are 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 appropriating uh, some of Thomism, some of Thomas's thought on the doctrine of God. Stephen Charnock makes reference to Thomas uh, multiple times in his existence and attributes of God, and he does so favorably. Um. And what you will find in the Reformed and the post-Reformed is when you have those authors refuting or rebutting the medieval scholastics, the, 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 the preeminent of which, of course, was Thomas, what they usually get him on is not his doctrine of God. It's usually on his sacramentology, his flawed sacramentology. It's on his ecclesiology. Um, it's on his, his, uh, his prayer to the saints, his Mariolatry, right? So, because all that's in Thomas too. Um, and so, but, but you don't have, the interesting thing is you don't have guys attacking Thomas in the Reformed milieu in the 16th and 17th centuries for his doctrine of God. You have a reception of Thomas's doctrine of God. This is just the historical, the, the, very little is debated about this in terms, of, in terms of a reception of Thomas's articulation of theology proper. Um, again, if you want proof of that, go and read someone like Charnock, who favorably receives 
explicitly so Thomas's doctrine. It's in those two volumes on the existence and attributes of God. Um, to some extent, a reception is present in, in John Owen. It's most certainly present in Franciscus Junius. Um, you will find it present in um, Witsius, uh, that, that five-volume set behind me, his commentary on the Apostles' Creed. You'll find Thomas received there. You'll find Vermigli receiving Thomas. Um, uh, and there's very little controversy about Thomas's doctrine of God, his Trinitarian theology, there's very little controversy revolving around that during the time of the Reformation and the post-Reformation. And so when we now stand this far down the road and we say, yeah, I believe in Thomism or classical Christian theism or, or, or something along those lines, we're referring to doctrine that was not found exclusively in Thomas, but was actually regurgitated and appropriated by Reformed and post-Reformed theologians. And... And in fact, made its way into large measure, in large measure, into the the Reformed confessions. This this language of no body parts or passions in both the Second London and the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, that is a carryover from much of the language that is found in Thomas and 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 how it kind of survives on into uh, the Reformation and the earliest years of of post-reformed orthodoxy with, uh, you know, uh, Perkins and all of them. So we need to be careful, all right? It, we're doing historical theology. We need to parse the issues correctly. We can't just say, oh, you know, this is Roman Catholic doctrine. Well, there's doctrine that's not distinct to Roman Catholicism. There's doctrine, uh, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Trinity, that's not original to Roman Catholicism, and it's not exclusive to Roman Catholicism. It's it's being articulated by Augustine. It's being articulated before Roman Catholicism as it stands today and as it stood at, at the Council of Trent was even a thought, right? And that's what a lot of this resourcement is 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 going to show. And it's especially showing that in in uh, the post-reformed Orthodox Turretin, you just need to read Turretin. If you're confused as to whether or not uh, a, a a classical theistic doctrine of God is, you know, in line with what Reformed Christians have believed for hundreds of years, read Turretin. He's not original. He's not articulating anything original. He's not articulating anything controversial in, in terms of his, his surroundings and the people that would have read his work, his peers. So let's, let's, that was a long-winded response, and I probably answered some questions that are going to be brought up here in a moment. I read him. I read him. Um, um, I've always seen it. I've always seen it. It's always been associated with a diminishment of the centrality of biblical exegesis as the foundation of one's And an exaltation. Um, so, again, Dr. White's raising another concern that's not altogether invalid is, you know, we don't want to uh, serve as the erasure to biblical orthodoxy or, or biblical theology or biblical exegesis, for that matter. And the and the the foundation that Scripture provides for faith and life. But here's the thing. 
we need to understand the place of Scripture. There are things that Scripture does not teach that we need to assume in order to come to Scripture. There are, and, and interpret it correctly, the laws of logic are one of those things. Uh, the, the Scripture does not teach the formal laws of logic. And even if the Scripture did teach those things, you would have to use the formal laws of logic and assume the formal laws of logic to read the scriptures properly. I would also say that there needs to be an assumed uh, doctrine of God, namely that which is revealed through general or natural revelation. Genesis 1 begins with God, but it, there's no uh, explanation as to what that is. You can't make sense of the even the word God in Genesis 1.1 without having some kind of pre-existing assumption, presupposition, knowledge, whatever you want to call it. And then scripture itself needs to be rightly contextualized. Uh, and, and that's kind of what I've been alluding to with the laws of logic. But, but scripture itself needs to be contextualized, right? What, where is the place of scripture? Um, and, you know, when we're talking about... Uh, ultimate foundations, uh, we need to realize that Scripture is creaturely. It's not God. It's the revelation of God. So God caused Scripture. And what we believe about the nature of God is going to inform us of what we believe or is going to inform us concerning the Scriptures. That's what I'm trying to say. What we believe what we know of God is going to inform how we come to the Scripture. So God provides the ontological context for the text of Holy Writ. And if, if, if God is not one way or the other, then we would expect Scripture to be, to be different, right? So, so God is the cause of Scripture. God reveals Scripture, and so Scripture is going to follow the nature of God. It's going. It, it's got. It's got God's fingerprints all over it, um, and this is a big deal because uh, you think of, you think of canonicity, um, and if you read John Owen's, I, I believe his first volume on Hebrews, his exposition of the Hebrews. There's a there's a controversy that arose during his time and, and prior to it that questioned the canonicity of the book of Hebrews. So he, he goes through and he, he argues for why Hebrews ought to be included in the canon. And the early church, when the canon was being discovered, not created by, by the Christian community by any means, but discovered, um, there was a rubric uh, that would allow someone to distinguish, yes, this book, from this other apocryphal book over here, okay, it, and and it wasn't just that that particular book said this is the word of God, right? There was there was more to it than that. This bears the character of who we know God to be. This bears this this bears the character of that which informs the whole church, right? And a lot of these Owen goes through a lot of these, uh, you know, different. Um, 
checkpoints, so to speak, that uh, that de- that that determine in our thinking uh, what should and shouldn't be included in the New Testament canon. But that source criticism, I'm sure Dr. James White knows all about that, uh, and I'm not going to to uh, pretend to to inform him on that. But I would just ask him to apply that situation to this particular one. There had to be some assumed tools in the toolbox in order for the the the, the fathers to recognize scripture for what it is. Um, and uh, now you could just say, well, they were all inspired. They were all being inspired in a very supernatural way to to do that. In which case, you're 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 extending inspiration beyond beyond the canon of scripture itself. You're extending it to those who assembled the canon of scripture, essentially. Uh, and of course, you could ascribe it to providence, which you should. But everything again is the result of providence. So what were in the th- in the thinking of the early church, what was it that would cause them to say, yes, this book is God's word, this isn't, right? So, so think about, just, just consider that when, when you're thinking about the fact that Scripture needs a context. Um, you know, uh, one easy way to, to really prove this is, you know, Scripture doesn't teach you how to build a rocket ship. Uh, it doesn't teach you how to be a banker. There are good bankers who have never turned the page of Scripture. And, and so there's a place for scripture and there's, there's a purpose or a teleology for scripture. What is that? I think the Reformed Confessions define that very well and very clearly. Anyway, let's continue on. Oh, philosophical categories, over biblical exegesis. It's consistent throughout my life. And I'm finally old enough to say, I think I have enough decades to make some observations. Make some observations. Um, um, okay. Again, uh, the, 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 he's saying he's calling them philosophical principles. Uh, there are first principles it needs to be understood that there are first principles. And actually Francis Turretin locates at least some of those first principles, which contextualize scripture in his line of thought in natural theology. So there, there are first principles that come before that must be presupposed if we're to make any sense of Scripture whatsoever. If we're to make any sense of anything, but especially of Scripture. That's been my experience with folks in SES. And I'm and seeing that coming I'm into that coming the Reformed the camp. Reformed and camp. I don't see that the I results are good. The... So I made this comment, and Josh Summer wrote a comment on Facebook. And I wanted to, wanted to read it. Um, even though for some reason the font looks ridiculously small. We will do our best. <clears throat> there are several factors leading to a revival of classical metaphysics and classical Christian theism, often non-technically called Thomism. I used, oh, by the way, I used that, hold on a minute. That um, is, I used that language, classical metaphysics and classical theism, very carefully and very intentionally um, because I didn't want to use the word Thomism. Uh, and the reason I used those words to describe those uh, particular areas of thought is because I wanted to, uh, to start 
with uh, some kind of an acknowledgement that this the, these things don't belong exclusively to Thomas. The terminology is being used. I do not grant this because I mean that that's making a claim in and of itself. This is this is okay. So what what Dr. James White just said there? He does not grant the language of classical metaphysics or classical Christian theism. He doesn't grant those categories. Classical uh, Christian theism. We get to define that. Um. Okay. You say so. I personally reject that that language i i don't think i define classical christian theism i think that the uh that objective reality defines it whether or not you're looking at natural revelation or special revelation um so you know i'm i'm not saying nor is anyone else who's well-intentioned saying they're the ones who have exclusive right to define these things. We're arguing on the basis of facts. Some of the facts, obviously, most of them, if not nearly all of them, are not in my Facebook post um, for the very reason being that it's a Facebook post. Um, the least of which you'll be surprised to know uh, is an actual resourcement of Thomas. Richard Mueller, James Dolezal, the follow-up from the Arbka debate on impassibility, and the continued resourcement of post-reformed source material, as is preeminently uh, presented by Muller, but also in the readers produced by men like Samuel Renningham, have all played major roles in the rekindling of the capitalized great tradition featuring Craig Carter, 